0: Hello and welcome to OBEhave, the podcast where we talk about behavior analysis and related sciences and learn about them. I am your host, Brian Middleton, also known as the Bearded Behaviorist. And today we have a guest returning, Sho Araiba, um, who is a BCBAD who practices in Hawaii. Uh, He is from Tokyo, Japan, and he has a fantastic show um, on YouTube. Underneath his name, so S H O A R A I B A, where he considers different topics of psychology from the behavior, uh, the behaviorist lens, and uh, discusses those ideas. I highly recommend you check out his um, YouTube channel. And uh, welcome, show. Thank you for coming on to the show today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, my understanding today is that we're going to be res- talking about respondent conditioning and operant conditioning.
1: Yep. So um, I think it's uh, the good way to start is to talk about two types of behavior. Okay. And uh, those are reflex and so-called voluntary behavior. Okay. So reflex is a, um, you know, something that uh, we are, hardwired so to speak or you're born with so let's say if you uh, see a baby a baby has a lot of reflexes that that come with come with he or she and uh, so let's say you uh, stimulate the baby's cheek then baby is going to baby's going to orient to that uh to that side of of the cheek Okay, if you stimulate the baby's mouth, then our baby is going to suck that um suck the stimulus that uh stimulated the mouth right? okay so if you you know we we have we, we have a lot of reflexes like right? okay, if you put the puff of air in your eye then you, then we blink so those are the reflexes. And okay. yeah, and the other other behaviors are called voluntary behavior. In in ABA we are call we call them operant behavior. Okay. Yeah.
0: So and yeah. The reason for that that naming difference between common parlance and and uh and ABA is because the term voluntary implies that somebody has control over it all the time. Whereas with operant, it's, it's referring to it's responding to an operation or a, a set of contingencies. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So reflex is very easily, uh, thought of as a kind of a mechanical response because there is a particular stimulus that triggers that
0: a particular, uh, response. So if, so for a, example, like when you walk into a bright room, your, your pupils will, uh, will re, will retract, but yeah. when you walk into a dark room, your pu- pupils will dilate. So you can get more, more light yeah. in towards your retina.
1: Yeah. And those re- relations relationships never really change across time. So it's very, it's a in that sense. Okay. Yeah. Whereas the, uh, voluntary behavior or operant behavior is uh has a relationship with with the stimulus which comes after responses so if it's a rat you know rat presses the liver and food is presented and the rat presses the liver more so food is a stimulus and liver pressing is a response But that relationship is that response comes first and then the food comes later.
0: So I like to use this example with candy machines. Um, When I first was introduced to candy machines, I saw the bright colors and it was fascinating, but uh, it wasn't until I saw sibling place quarter in candy machine rotate lever and sweet treats come out that I realized that the candy machine equals candy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, that would be an operant conditioning. So now even though I am not as well, um, generally speaking, when it comes to candy, I, uh, as an adult, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of candy. Um, mainly because, there's consequences for eating sugar. And uh, one of those consequences is if I eat too much of it, I get heartburn. (laughs) Um, and yet, even though I tend not to eat much candy, um, I will walk into a room and if there's a candy machine, I will notice it. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm not planning on grabbing a quarter and putting it in there and getting, you know, whatever it is that's in there out, but I still notice the candy machine <laughs> because that's a, uh, an operant conditioned Response, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. am I right, or is that yeah. a, is that a respondent conditioning? <laughs>
1: well, I think, yeah, that's a that's a you know, I mean, try to tease out whether one or the other is a kind of difficult thing to do, but uh, yeah, definitely something is at work, and uh, maybe it's a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, that's a theoretical um, thing to talk about. You know, maybe you know later in the podcast, maybe you have opportunity to do theoretical. Uh, argument, but okay. yeah. But, um, we'll, we'll circle back if we have time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, so um, respondent a reflex is, um, you know, like I said, it's a kind of a mechanical uh, system that we have at birth. And some of those reflexes disappear as you grow up and let's say the baby's um, orienting response to the cheek stimulation disappears and uh, sucking response to the mouth disappears and those are um, a sort of transfer to voluntary or operant behavior of orienting and sucking based on the contingency so which is kind of an interesting thing of itself So baby used to just suck milk uh, from mother's breast when the mouth is stimulated. But as he or she grows older, that sucking response becomes operant, which is maintained by getting a milk. So there are some uh, operant reflex transfer that goes on as we grow up. And for humans, it's pretty much about this operant behavior that we um, that we live with, you know, for animals, there are a lot of uh, limitations to that. And that's probably one of the things that differentiate humans from other animals, which is humans are so flexible. And uh, our range of operant is much, much wider than any other animals
0: yeah i've i've noticed that um and that's one of the things that i i find most amazing about humans because like on one hand we can be so destructive and so uh stuck in certain (laughs) areas but uh, but on another hand like we can learn and do some really amazing things
1: yeah yeah (laughs) You know, I was looking at a dog um a friend had a my friend has a dog and every time she uh lays down on the floor she has to turn around twice before she lays down on the floor. You know, <laughs> and that's like uh kind of like a fixed pattern, you know, that the the dog has to do that before sits down. And I was fascinated by it because, you know, just just cannot stop doing it, you know. <laughs> but humans, we don't really have any of those things. So, you know, it, re- it enables us to do so many different things.
0: Okay. So one of the things that, that I've kind of noticed about uh, respondent conditioning is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, respondent tends to be more dependent on environmental controls. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like, for example, the light or sound or that sort of thing. Whereas with operant, while it does also interact with environmental controls, it's more um, based off of a history of reinforcement or punishment of the behavior. And so, um, for example, if... I learn that before the, uh, so let's say a class is ending. Um, I know that when the teacher starts walking towards the back of the room to turn on the light, that that means that there is a, a high probability that the lights will be turned on, which means that I will shade my eyes to make the respondent or reflexive response of the pupils adjusting to the light conditions less painful or aversive mm-hmm. so that would be a if i remember correctly that would be a negative reinforced behavior because i'm doing it to escape an aversive um and ah, I therefore I i'm more likely to to do that behavior in the future when those conditions come into play does that sound uh, about right
1: i yeah i think you know it's kind of confusing when you talk about the pure pure and avoidance of that because it's kind of like has the reflexive component to it as well Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so but um, in terms of a, a sort of environmental control there is a very big difference in between uh respondent conditioning and uh operant conditioning and let's let's talk about the respondent conditioning first so, okay. um, so we we know uh we, we know what we are talking about. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> so uh for the for the for for those of you who don't know what respondent conditioning is, uh it's also called Pavlovian conditioning and uh, classical conditioning as well. And I think you in your podcast, you uh, Brian talked about that a little bit when you talked about behaviorism yeah right so pavlov's dog and uh sali- salivation and uh, bell so that's the arrangement of pavlovian conditioning so in terms of behavior it's a reflexive behavior and so reflex is uh elicited we thought ta- we use the term elicited uh by uh unconditioned stimulus so unconditioned stimulus is the stimulus that reliably elicits a reflex so if it's a Power's experiment it's the meat powder on the uh, dog's tongue right so the presentation of the meat powder is the okay. unconditioned stimulus and the reflex is the saliva right So that's, so the unconditioned stimulus is the uh, meat powder and saliva is a
0: response,
1: right? Yeah, which is called unconditioned response. So that relationship is a reflexive relationship. And as you all know, the Pavlov noticed that when you present a metronome sound right before presenting the meat powder, right uh there's something fascinating happens because if you just present a metronome sound by itself there is no uh responses that that is elicited by the dog so dog has nothing no fixed pattern of behavior toward uh metronome so metronome is a neutral stimulus for that matter but when you present the metronome sound with the meat powder the meat powder produces the saliva and if you repeat that over and over again the dog starts to salivate in the presence of the metronome before the presentation of meat powder so now the metronome acquired a reflex eliciting control uh, over dog's uh, salivation. And at that point, metronome now becomes a conditioned stimulus. And the salivation that is elicited by the metronome is the conditioned response
0: so in 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 aba terms um or in behaviorism terms i guess you could say um the conditioned stimulus uh sorry an un a, a unconditioned stimulus is paired with a neutral stimulus and that neutral stimulus then becomes a conditioned stimulus
1: yeah so so that's the basis of uh respondent conditioning so the the feature of that conditioning type is that there is a antecedent stimulus which means that the stimulus that comes before a response is responsible for eliciting a certain type of <coughs> behavior and the neutral stimulus is going to acquire that stimulus control as it's paired with the uh unconditioned stimulus
0: and there's a there's a lot of um unconditioned stimulus um there's uh food air water uh of course depending on the organism because some some animals will uh access water differently but um yeah so food air water uh sexual contact uh warmth or uh depending on the conditions of course uh cool uh or or coolness um but generally speaking you know living organisms need a certain body temperature so basically the the capacity to regulate um temperature if the conditions are harsh in one direction or another yeah um is there anything i missed um
1: physiological responses like emotional responses increasing heartbeat uh sweating okay um uh, vocalization of some kind right so if there is if you um let's say punch the stomach of <laughs> somebody then you will make some sound right which is pretty much uh reflexive uh, it's okay. a bad example <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know if there is a big noise or a big uh change in stimulus in the environment you will orient to that stimulus which is also reflexive as well. And
0: well, I, uh, yeah. I've also noticed that with humans we tend to respond to beat um so, so rudimentary music uh and, oh. and musicality. It's not it's not all uh not all animals respond that way but for humans that that's that's one of our I guess it's a, it's a part of our genetic history. Um the beats you know drumming things like that those seem to be highly um yeah that's
1: interesting because I think um you know to what extent a stimulus is has a reflexive uh relationship is uh is a kind of difficult thing to do because some people also say like you know in in addition to music a storytelling is something that's fundamental to human nature. And, you know, why do you go to movies and, and uh, read books? And, mm. you know, maybe part of the reasons is that those formats will elicit some emotional responses uh, from us and that may, uh, that may be somehow um, contributing to it. So there's a lot going on in Pavlovian conditioning. And one of the things that I want to add is that most of our studies about brain and neuroscience is coming from Pavlovian conditioning studies with animals like rats.
0: Okay.
1: So, you know, when, you know, in the last podcast, we were talking about the application of... Um, concepts of behavior principles, most of neuroscience studies is actually coming from that as well. And Pavlov was also a physiologist too. So that has a very strong uh, tradition there that we are That's
0: part okay. of. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, we're going to take just a moment to pause for a word from our sponsors. And we're back. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Um, again, I have Show Raiva with me, and we're talking about respondent and operant conditioning.
1: All right. So let's talk about operant conditioning now. And okay. So yeah, like we talked about, it's operant behavior is sometimes called voluntary behavior uh operant conditioning is sometimes called instrumental conditioning okay and uh in aba operant conditioning is uh is not really uh, about voluntary behavior or free will or intention or any of those things operant behavior is actually a behavior that is maintained by uh environmental changes as well Okay. So here's a step. Um, so in operant conditioning, um, there's some kind of behavior that's happening. And some of those behaviors meet a stimulus change in the environment. Okay. And when that stimulus changes in the environment is uh, going to increase the behavior in the future, then we say that operant operant conditioning has occurred. So for example, let's say that a rat is uh, running around in the box and accidentally bumps into a lever and the lever place is going to produce food now that Libra plus is going to increase in the future because of the presentation of food. So that's the simple uh, relationship uh, in operant conditioning. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, an example that comes to mind is, uh, I love studying cephalopods uh, as specifically octopus uh, or octopi. Uh, Uh fascinating creatures and uh very very intelligent in in a very unique way um and uh one of one of the things i love to watch is is a a octopus that will um be presented with a jar Mm -hmm. and it it will it'll start it'll start feeling it and touching the surface and applying its suckers and those sorts of things and if the if the jar is presented in just the right way Um, the octopus will open it and access food. Um, And I I, I saw a video where this was initially presented with a a live crab inside. So the octopus was reflexively responding to the skittering of the crab Mm because it knows what what crabs uh, chitin on the plastic sounds like. And it can see that the crab is moving around inside even uh, because the jar is clear and uh, it opened it up. Uh, it, it took a while, but it opened it up and uh, it accessed a highly preferred food. Um, and, it, and then and the next video showed um, the same octopus being presented with a jar that had some dead fish in it. And uh, I think in the caption, it said that the, the, the octopus had learned over time um that you know when the jars presented there's a possibility of food being inside and it opened it up faster than your typical human could and accessed <laughs> the fish inside and uh it was a, a fantastic example of um of of, of operant conditioning uh-huh.
1: yeah that's yeah it's really a uh, interesting thing to think about uh what other animals do in in those situations because you cannot really talk to them (laughs) uh, i think there's another example about a shark there was a um there is a bunch of video about uh shark whispers you know in hawaii there are Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, sharks there and there are a lot of divers who dive with the sharks and one of the controversies that that they have is that you know is it okay to interact with a shark in the natural environment and uh mm. what's interesting is that those divers dive into the ocean, and the shark comes and they and the divers will sort of like uh tickle tickle them like kind of rub them in their um jar okay, and the shark. Kind of like goes into some um, forensic state, and then um, for for a while, right, oh. and and then then the shark leaves, right, and then the the controversy is: is it really something you know um, bad for the shark to do, or is it something that um, you know humans are forcing, like divers are forcing uh, the shark to do? and Mm -hmm. but if you look at what the shark is doing so the shark approaches people divers and the diver gives the the tickling Mm -hmm. and the shark shark stays there for a while and then moves away from the diver and diver stays on the spot and the shark comes back to get more tickling and then that comes, that occurs multiple times, and at that point you can say, "Hey, that's an operant conditioning." <laughs> so yeah. yeah, and so you know, even though you don't really know, you don't even speak shark's language, but it's clear that rubbing or tickling is actually um, reinforcing to that shark.
0: You know? So because it's returning to yeah. receive the stimuli again
1: yeah voluntarily one can say that it's voluntary okay yeah so that's a voluntary type of uh behavior that we usually call it um you know act of will but it's really uh, maintained by um uh consequence stimulus change and uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I always say is I can always, um, you know, let's say that people go to work right? and then you ask, OK, why are you going to work? You know, and uh, if there is any physical way to stop from stop people from going to work. And, you know, people usually say, no, I'm going because I like it. No, because I, I go because I like people or, you know, people uh, say. Or it's a habit. Yeah, or... It's a habit, yeah. And, and if that's the case, then you cannot do anything about changing their behavior of going to work. But if you look at the environment and say, oh, you know what, what, what if we stop paying them? right do they do their behavior actually change you know and, okay so let's say I'm not gonna pay you from today if you come to work fine you come to work because of your free will but I'm not gonna pay you anymore and see how many people actually come back to work <laughs> And then, you know, not people might, yeah, not that many. And then, you know, and then my peop- some people may because, you know, they may like hanging out with people there. And then if that's the case, you take away the people from workplace so that that person cannot interact with them. And how many people actually come back to work consistently? You know, probably not, not so much anymore. So our behavior is really controlled by consequences that are visible to us mm-hmm. that are manipulable for us. And, uh, and that's really something that br- gives us some, uh, ability to, uh, apply when people need help.
0: So this brings up a question, um, that, that occurs to me quite frequently and. um, That question is is one of the primary reinforcers, um, homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Is it is it like consistency, a pattern, uh, and that sort of thing, or is that uh, is is that a would that be a primary reinforcer, or do you think that's under operant control? Well, it depends. Too complex of a question.
1: (laughs) I think it depends on what you look at because like uh in previous video previous uh podcast we uh we are talking about the behavior analysis being objective branch Mm -hmm. of experimental um science right so when you talk about homeostasis
0: what is it that we are actually looking at okay so it's kind of determining like what what the stimulus class and the behavior classes uh, yeah so let's say that,
1: yeah so if let's say that when you talk about homeostasis if you are talking about uh temperature so okay. you know if you're too cold or too
0: warm uh, and then it so that would probably fall under primary reinforcer mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. so it's You can say that
1: as a primary reinforcer, or that you can just say that, okay, so behavior is to turn on the AC, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And the uh, consequence is the presentation of uh, cold air. Then the cold air is the reinforcer. Uh, in that particular instance okay and then you can say well is that a primary or secondary reinforcer well probably it's a primary uh reinforcer in that instance yeah.
0: but it could also be a secondary uh-huh. because I've traveled quite a bit I've been to South America and Europe. Um, haven't made it to Asia yet. I'm looking forward to that one day, but, um, I've noticed that Americans, uh, we tend to be very reliant on air conditioning (laughs) and, uh, and so, um, I've noticed that the temperature, uh, that, that we Americans prefer for our, our homes or where we're working or living tends to be, uh, more in a certain range. Whereas with folks in other countries, even first world countries, they tend to be a little bit more tolerating of whatever the, the ambient temperature is. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, they will do things to cool down or warm up depending on the circumstances, Mm -hmm. of course, but there's a a certain level of tolerance. Whereas with uh, when my wife and I were traveling, uh, especially in warmer areas, we, were very much interested in being quite a bit cooler than the uh, uh, the the typical local, uh-huh. uh, and that that probably was secondary because of our con- our, our learning history, our conditioning.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's actually a pretty difficult uh, thing to figure it out. Actually, yeah, but I think what what's interesting about that example is that it's it what works as a consequence uh, reinforcement really depends on individual so you know like for you the temperature of a particular kind is reinforcing but not to another person which is really something that's um important in operant conditioning too
0: that's true um that Mm. individualization is essential
1: yeah yeah it's really hard you know because as a practitioner the primary thing that the f- the very first thing and the most important thing for us to do is to find a consequence that is reinforcing for a particular client you know it can be attention it can be toys it can be edibles it can be physical at- uh, activities it can be some other things but to find it is really the most important thing and probably one of the most difficult things to do yeah so i mean you are talking about uh, a while ago you posted uh, a posted on the facebook that uh, you are talking about uh, rapport building and the importance of rapport building and also maintaining rapport yeah and uh, and that also is related to finding stimuli that are reinforcing to your client, and that's really something um uh, we as a therapist is paying attention to,
0: yeah um. It was, uh, I think that was a previous conversation we had. I don't think we had, that's been on any of the recordings that we're, we're mm-hmm. publishing, but, um, so, uh, we were talking about pairing, um, which is a, a, an ABA term or behavior, behaviorism term. And another word for pairing is, is building rapport. And, uh, I, I recently made a little, I guess you would call it a meme or a quote or something where I, I compared pairing or building that rapport with um, Bluetooth. And if you don't have a good pair for Bluetooth, then the devices uh, the device is not going to play. You're not going to get the audio or the, the data is not going to transfer or whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish with a Bluetooth connection. Well, likewise, if you don't have a good pair with the client that you're working with, um, then you're not going to have um, stimulus control, or or uh, um, you're, you're not going to there's going you're not going to be reinforcing, and therefore the individual is not less likely to learn, I should say. And um, I actually work quite a bit with teachers um, as a, a special ed teacher. I'm still credentialed and licensed in that. Um, I was a special ed teacher for a little over seven years, um, and I uh, I have to say that that is essential to, to understanding as mm-hmm. as uh, as teachers, um, because if we don't have that, then we're not going to be able to to teach and learn. And sometimes teachers struggle with that because, like, well, they should be learning. They're here at school. That's the purpose. And I go, okay, yeah, you're right but at the same time think of your favorite teacher like think of those those teachers Mm -hmm. that that inspired you and that made you want to learn uh, and made you want to to teach and do these things were they reinforcing (laughs) you know did you have a pair with them um and the different pair depends on the different individual because you know it's stimulus uh variability and stimulus generalization and that sort of thing um so, for example, one of my favorite teachers uh, is is uh, Rick Blodgett. He was my chemistry teacher, and he was a, a, a scout leader um, for me. And he was he is very calm and loving, and kind, and steady. And talking with him it just builds reassurance and makes you feel like you belong. But another one of my favorite teachers, Dave Hanna. Um, he was very demanding Mm -hmm. of me. He he put expectations and he always held me to a higher bar. And it wasn't that he was mean about it. He was always very kind about it. And as soon as he saw any behavior that was along the lines of what he was trying to do, he would praise. Uh And when you got praise from Dave, oh man, (laughs) it was like, it was like getting the gold medal at the Olympics, man. Wow. Kind of strut around and feel very proud because Dave had told you that you did good. <laughs> oh, my. Wow. That's so, amazing. Yeah. And, and those, are, those are just two of the many teachers who have, have shaped mm-hmm. um, me and why I am passionate over education and learning and in relation to that, because behavior analysis, uh, behaviorism is the study of learning um, behaviorism. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, um, is there any other thoughts or things that you wanted to, to share about um, respondent or Pavlovian conditioning and operant or Skinnerian conditioning? Um,
1: I think that's pretty much what, uh, what I had in mind. I think, you know, the, the, um, I guess the only thing that I can, th- uh, think about right now is that, you know, I had this, uh, professor called Dr. Fears in, um, in, when, when I was in graduate school and, uh, he mm-hmm. said when he was talking about two types of behavior, reflex and voluntary behavior he said if you can find a third type of behavior you will get a Nobel prize so if you are interested in finding out this third type of behavior you know you you have that challenge still going so
0: <laughs> that's well uh that's a that's a good challenge <laughs> Well, um, just briefly, uh, I've been thinking on the candy machine question, and, uh, and so oh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw out this thought before we before we end, uh, before we hit the candy machine question, mm-hmm. uh, real quick, folks. If you want to support the podcast, and we would love you to reinforce this behavior, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com/slash o behave o um, h behave. You can also go to Anchor.fm slash Obehave and contribute to the podcast that way as well, um, as well as uh, go directly to Obehave uh, sorry obhavepodcast.com if you want to learn more about the podcast. Um, is there? Do you have a Patreon show?
1: No, I don't have a Patreon, just a YouTube channel.
0: Okay, uh, also shows got his YouTube channel, so it's uh, first name S H O. And last name, A-R-A-I-B-A, it's underneath his name. Um, highly recommend that you view the videos. They're, they're fascinating. They're well-structured. Um, I love how you uh, consider other psychologists and their approaches to things, and, as well as your discussions on, on different things um, in daily life, as well as uh, in relation to other um, branches of psychology and, and giving that behaviorist uh, view of it. Um, so the candy machine. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking um, the respondent conditioning is the paired stimuli of the colorful candy equals um, the salivation. So basically kind of a Pavlovian <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing uh-huh. there. Right. You see the colorful thing, you know that that's, that's an indication that there's uh, reinforcement possible mm-hmm. through the candy um, but the operant part, uh, so, uh, sorry. And going back to the respondent part. Um, so the salivation, when you see it, that would be respondent, all those different things in, in, in that, um, class would be responding to the, the, the visual stimuli, but the operant part is the taking of the quarter and placing it in and rotating. Um, because okay. learning history has shown that by doing that, you are going to get candy. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah <clears throat> yeah I think that's that's pretty uh um uh, accurate and uh, I th- you know one of the reasons why it's a difficult question is that they sometimes occur together and, mm-hmm. and because if you think about like you said if you think about the uh, arrangement of stimuli and uh responses then you can say that The candy uh is a unconditioned stimulus that triggers uh saliva and the the candy machine is the neutral stimulus that will turn into a conditioned stimulus when when the uh when the saliva uh, occurs to that um, machine and also for the operant conditioning the candy machine is the discriminative stimulus which we haven't talked about but we all do uh mm-hmm. not, not with me but you know you are going to do it later uh and the behavior is the uh turning the knob and getting the candy and the consequences is, is to put the candy in the mouth so if you think about the procedure you have Pavlovian procedure and operant procedure that sort of occurs at the same time. And so people talk about it as a two-factor theory of mm-hmm. conditioning and people debate whether or not these uh, conditioning types interact at once. <clears throat> and, but I think the, for, for, for you and me, for that purpose, the best way to think about it is what kind of behavior are we looking at yeah so if we are looking at the operant behavior of turning the knob you know putting the coin turning the knob getting the candy well then talk about in terms of operant conditioning whereas if you're talking about saliva or some increasing heart rate because you're excited about the candy or Mm -hmm. you know digestive systems that comes along with the uh, you know, <laughs> chewing the candy, then you're talking about the Pavlovian um, conditioning. Okay. So, yeah. So that's my answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, it was a fun thought exercise. And uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really grateful for you coming on to the uh, the podcast show. Thank you so much for, for participating.
1: Yeah. Thank um, you for having me. It, I, it's I it's a good been a time. real pleasure. Yeah.
0: And uh, I look forward to you, uh, to meeting up with you when you come out here to that, the the Four Corners Conference. Oh, so yeah, yeah. To enjoy ourselves with some sushi. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. All right. Thank you, folks, for joining us for uh, o Behave, the podcast. Uh, we look forward to having you on a further show. show. Um, and uh, I hope you have an excellent evening.
1: Thank you.